statues uh, of the Christian church era is in a museum in Rome called the Lateran Museum. It was apparently found in the catacombs and dates to about 200 years after Christ. It's a marble statue about 39 inches tall, and it's a statue of a shepherd carrying a lamb on his shoulders with a pleasant smile on his face. It's titled The Good Shepherd, like many of those statues, reproductions of that have been labeled. And that's appropriate. That from the earliest times, Christians have memorialized Christ and the Christian faith with depictions of the great shepherd. Other than the cross of Jesus, nothing really depicts the incarnation or intent and purposes of the incarnation of Christ more than the good shepherd. That he came to shepherd the sheep and he cares for his sheep. The symbol of sheep and shepherd are found throughout the scripture and some of the most well-known men in the Bible were shepherds at some point in time. Men like Abel, Abraham, Isaac, Moses, David, all were shepherds at some point in their life. The symbol of sheep and shepherds sprinkled throughout the, the scripture. Jesus would say of Israel when he was on the earth, they are like sheep without a shepherd. The idea of a shepherd caring for his sheep comes up in our text here at 1 Corinthians 15, where Jesus gives three parables in chapter 15, Well, that's just the beginning. There's actually six parables between chapters 15, 16, and 17 that Jesus gives. The first three in chapter 15 all kind of go together. They're something that was lost and then was found. The first is the lost sheep, the second is the lost coin, the third is the lost son. And Jesus is giving these parables as he's responding in this particular case to some accusations against him from the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus is on his way from from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. It'll be the last time he makes such a trip. He will eventually, after stopping in several towns and villages on the way, he'll get to Jerusalem where he will uh, enter in what we call Passion Week. That's the week that he'll die on the cross and uh, he'll enter there early in the week and then by Friday will have been put to death on the cross. But in the time that he has left on the earth, he's pouring into his disciples, into the various groups that will listen to him, and he's, and he's making clear why he came. So we're going to read just uh, the first seven verses, and we'll pick up the next parable in a moment. But let's read the first ele- or seven verses of Luke chapter 15. You follow along as I read. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he had a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Those 
people whom the average Jews considered to be accursed by God were coming, still flocking to Jesus, still wanting to hear what he had to say. The scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes are the experts in the law, or the lawyers, were grumbling at the fact that Jesus would associate with such people. That he would allow himself to be seen and fellowshipping with people like tax collectors and sinners. That's in verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. We've explained before a number of times that tax collectors were hated by the average Jewish person in Israel at that time. They were seen as traitors to Israel. Israel naturally resented the fact that they were governed by the Romans. They were they were subservient to the Romans. They weren't their own nation. They really couldn't govern themselves. They were allowed a certain amount of freedom, but under Roman rule. And that was as long as they obeyed the Romans' laws and paid the Romans' taxes. And one of the ways that the Romans would collect taxes is have tax booths in different spots and different trade routes and different towns. They would have these tax booths. So what the Romans would do is they would franchise these tax booths. They would they would franchise it to the highest bidder. And you would have Jewish men who would bid on these tax franchises. So the, the Romans would say, we want to collect so much money in taxes, and then they would sell the, the, the franchise, and the person who got it would have to agree to give so much taxes to Rome, and then they got to keep whatever was left over. So the way they would bid on it was... This guy would say, well, I can get you so much money a year in taxes. And the other guy would say, no, I'll get you even more. He'd say, well, I can collect even more from the youngs. I want to make sure they pay even more than everybody else. And the Romans would obviously sell the franchise to the highest bidder. So for the average Jew, they saw that as traitorous because they felt like, and they were partly right, that collecting taxes for the Romans was enabling them to stay in power over Israel. So by being a Jew, collecting money for the Romans and handing it off to them, you were enabling them to continue to oppress the Jewish people. Not only that, most tax collectors were crooked. Because they bought this franchise, they had the full authority of the Roman government behind them to collect taxes. And because they bid it at a certain Price that they would promise the Roman government, anything above that price was their wages. So they could gouge people and they could add to the taxes and the people really had no, point, no, uh, no recourse but to pay the taxes. So most of the tax collectors would get very wealthy by taking advantage of people. Tax collectors during the time of Christ were, would be thought of in the same vein of that we would think of Benedict Arnold in America. We think of Benedict Arnold just as a traitor to the American way and to the American cause. That's the way the Jews saw the tax collectors. John Chrysostom, a 4th century church leader, said this, quote, The tax collector is the personification of licensed violence, of legal sin, of baseless greed, end quote. That will give you an idea of the way that the average Jew saw the tax collectors. The sinners, well, that's just a generic term for a sordid group of people that were considered undesirable in society. They would include people like prostitutes or thieves or other assorted riffraff. Together, they were the rejects 
the rejects of Jewish society. They were all, one way or another, had been excommunicated from the synagogues. You would never expect to see uh, any of these people walking out of a synagogue unless they were stealing something. You would never see them in the temple compound uh, buying a sacrifice or getting ready to offer a sacrifice. You just wouldn't see that kind of a thing. So the question that comes up is, why would tax collectors and sinners want to be near Jesus? In John 3, Jesus made it clear that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. The evil people don't want to come near the light because their deeds are exposed. So why do they want to gather around Jesus? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. One of them is because they were rejected by everybody else. All the other religious leaders of the land had totally turned their back on these men and women and rejected them as as unredeemable. They can't ever uh, be anything other than the wicked people they are. They're beyond redemption. They're beyond forgiveness. They're beyond hope in the eyes of the Pharisees and the scribes, the chief priests, the Sadducees. But Jesus was different. He didn't give them a pass on their sin. I mean, from the very beginning, his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't give them a pass. He didn't turn a blind eye to their sin. But he also didn't treat them as if they were beyond hope. Consider the woman who was taken in adultery and thrown at the feet of Jesus. And the Pharisees gather around and say to Jesus, the law says to stone her, what do you say? And he says, the one of you without sin throw the first stone. And starting with the oldest and continuing until the youngest, they began to leave one by one as they realized they were not without sin. They were unable to throw stones at this guilty woman. And once they all left, Jesus looked up and said, where are your accusers? And she said, nowhere, my Lord. He said, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. He didn't give her a pass. He didn't say what you're doing is okay. He said, stop. In other words, repent. There are other examples of that as well. Jesus gave them hope. Hope of redemption. Hope of forgiveness. Hope of a relationship with God. A hope of eternal life. Something they didn't have in the Jewish, by the other rabbis, the other leaders of Jewish society, and certainly the religious Jews. There was no hope for them. To, to those men, these people were beyond hope. They were in a class that, that there was no hope for. Jesus was not trying to turn the tax collectors into Pharisees. The religious hypocrites were all about seeking to transform a person's behavior without ever transforming their heart. They thought if they just avoided certain sins, public sins, and they were therefore righteous. And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was all about transforming the heart. The external sin will take care of itself once the heart is transformed. But if the heart isn't transformed, it doesn't matter what external sins you commit or not. The heart's still the problem. Jesus gave them hope. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's where all of our hope is. If you're a believer today, it's because God gave you hope through Christ. Otherwise, you had no hope. Otherwise, we just become Pharisees. 
We try to live a righteous life aside from the hope that comes in Christ. Jesus showed compassion. Zacchaeus. You might have heard of him. He's a, he's a wee little man. And Jesus says, he's also a tax collector. And Jesus said, I'm going to your house today. And, and through the course of the meal, we see Zacchaeus repent. And by the end, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. Jesus shows compassion on this, this wealthy tax collector who finally comes to a point of repentance. Additionally, Jesus is a great physician who's looking to save the sick. In Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumbling at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Same thing happened at the beginning of his ministry, also happened at the end. And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Yes, it's axiomatic. If you're well, you don't need to go to the doctor. I know, not counting your insurance that requires you to get a well check so you can keep your same doctor. If you're sick, you go to the doctor. If you're not sick, you don't need to go to the doctor. You don't call up and wait 37 minutes on the phone for somebody to come on until you can make an appointment six weeks from now to go see your doctor so you can say, hey, I just wanted to tell you I feel great. It doesn't make any sense. So it's axiomatic. Yes, sick need a physician. So that's what Jesus is saying. I came to call the sinners to repentance. They're the ones who need me. Both the Pharisees and the scribes, verse 2 in our text, began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, why would the Pharisees and the scribes criticize Jesus for eating with sinners? Well, they thought that anyone who was a teacher, anyone who was a rabbi, would be like them. Would at least get their stamp of approval and they would never associate with such people. They would think that a, a man in Jesus' position needed to, to at least pass through their ranks somehow, getting their nod, their approval. The scribes and the Pharisees thought they were better than everybody else. They didn't... Uh, They thought that associating with sinners was somehow offensive and a violation of God's law. In reality, they totally missed the purpose of God's law. The total purpose of God's law was to show every man, woman, and child that they could not be righteous enough to get to heaven. The purpose of the Old Testament law was never a pathway to heaven in the sense that if you kept the law, you would go to heaven. That was never its intent. Its intent was always to show that man cannot be righteous enough to fulfill God's demands and therefore needs God's grace. Consider Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's reiterated in the book of Romans in chapter 3. In fact, Romans chapter 3 verse 20 says, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
It was never to keep, the law was never given in order to keep it in order to get to heaven. It was all to show that you couldn't keep it. But the Pharisees totally missed that. The Pharisees took the law and they ranked them, all the laws, and in order of most important to least important, and they began to say, these are the laws that you must keep. And if you keep these laws, then therefore you're right with God and assuring your place in heaven. But that was never the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin, so we would acknowledge it. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The, claw, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. The whole purpose of the law is to increase your guiltiness. To show you how guilty you really are. Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture was shut up so that everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were all kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which is, would, be, would later be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. In other words, the law was not there to save you. The law was there to show you, to teach you that you were a sinner and the only thing that would save you was faith in God, faith in Christ. So the law was designed to point everybody to Jesus. So that's what those Pharisees had missed. They saw the law as the end in itself. And if they could keep it, at least externally, they thought that's all that was necessary. The Pharisees acted as if God could only see what they allowed him to see. They didn't think, they obviously lived a life that didn't believe that God could actually see their hearts. And they seemed to think that God couldn't even see what took place in their own homes. God could only see what, what took place out in public. As if their homes were lead-lined and God couldn't see through it somehow. And God can't see into their hearts. They fail to recognize the heart was the issue all along. When the law is summarized in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. In Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to love Him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The Pharisees only looked at the outward. Even in their own lives, they were only looking at the outward. In the lives of others, they were only looking at the outward. And they fooled themselves into thinking that God looks at men the way they look at men. But God looks at the heart. Psalm 51, verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God wanted men to grieve over their sin. Because when they're grieving over their sin, they would call out by faith for grace. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Romans 10, 6, or 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. God is after the hearts of men and women. He's always been concerned about our hearts. The Pharisees, on the other hand, despised those that they labeled sinners. They had no love for them. 
They considered that the sin of others was contagious, while their own sin was unseen, or so they thought, and therefore insignificant. If people didn't know about it, it didn't matter. A lot of people live that way today. If nobody knows about my sin, then it doesn't really matter. My sin is fine. For the Pharisees, having dinner with the tax collectors and the sinners was like shaking hands with somebody with poison ivy. You're going to be guilty by association. You shake hands with a person with poison ivy, you're going to end up with poison ivy. The Pharisees didn't think they had any contagions, but the truth was they have a virus that spreads even past their mask of self-righteousness, and a virus that had deadly effect. It was so deadly that they passed on their virus to people who thought that if they just lived like the Pharisees, they were guaranteed a spot in heaven. And nothing could be further from the truth. So we know why the tax collectors and the sinners associated with Jesus. We know why the Pharisees and the scribes criticized Jesus for hanging out with his crowd, but why would Jesus associate with tax collectors and sinners? Well, it's not hard, and you know the answers. He loved them. He cared about their eternal soul. Jesus loved sinners and came to die for them. He told us several times that it was those who that society rejected the lame, the poor, the blind, the crippled, that would respond to the gospel. They would understand their great need. They recognize that they have nothing good to offer God and they come humbly by faith seeking grace. And Jesus was not afraid to associate with them. He was not afraid that he was going to get somehow infected by them. He was not ashamed to associate with sinners, with tax collectors, to share a meal with them. He was not concerned about the accusations of the Pharisees. He was not embarrassed when a a woman of ill repute comes and falls at his feet and washes his feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair. Jesus was a friend of sinners and he came to seek and to save the lost. And he's not worried about being considered guilty by association with sinners more to the point Jesus wanted those sinners to be made righteous by association with him. He wants them to be in his presence. The Pharisees not only despised the sinners, they also despised Jesus because he loved them. They criticized Jesus for eating with the sinners And they presumed unrighteous motives on his heart. The Pharisees were insinuating that the compassion that Jesus had for sinners was nothing more than secret approval of their sin. The Pharisees and the scribes thought it was scandalous of Jesus, somebody with his power and his charisma and his following to associate with such people. But the real scandal was the religious and societal leaders of Israel had failed in their task to shepherd the flock of God and point them to righteousness that only comes through faith. Their failure is prophesied by Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34 verse 10 says, Thus says the Lord God, 
Behold, I am against the shepherds. That's the shepherds of Israel. I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding my sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. God is saying, I am going to take my sheep from the shepherds of Israel because the shepherds are actually eating my sheep. In Ezekiel 34, verses 23 and 24, God says, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. And he will feed them himself, and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, since King David was dead for 500 years by the time Ezekiel wrote this, he's obviously not referring to the physical King David. He's referring to the greater David, the ultimate David, the offspring of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, speaking of the Son of God, of the Good Shepherd, Jesus. I'm going to set Jesus over my people. The Pharisees could not care less for the sinners and the Good Shepherd could not care more. For the, for the sinners. So Jesus responds to the critique of the Pharisees and the scribes of him having a meal and fellowshipping with, associating with tax collectors and sinners. He responds to that with three parables, all dealing with something that was lost then being found. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The parables combine to not only answer the accusation as to why he's associating with them, but goes further into explaining the joy that takes place um, in, with God over the repentance of a sinner. The first two, the lost, coin, the lost sheep and the lost coin, are very similar. And the third one, the lost son, is different than those other two. And Jesus actually leaves the end of that unfinished, letting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, write the, or the scribes, write the ending of it. We'll look at the first two today and leave the third one for next time. So we start with the lost sheep. Verses 3 and 4 again. And he told this parable to them, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which was lost until he finds it? So Jesus begins this parable with a rhetorical question. and, And as he does, he's... He's forcing his audience to play a role in the parable. When he says, which one among you? He's addressing the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's asking the question, which one of you guys, if you had a hundred sheep and one wandered off, wouldn't leave the 99 and go look for the one? And the implied answer, the expected answer is, we would all leave the 99 and go look for the one. And that's the point that Jesus is going to make here. What man among you? So he's causing them to think themselves. What would they do? And their response is actually going to be condemnation on themselves. The picture that Jesus gives is simple. Shepherds were well known in that area. Sheep were well known in that area, particularly at that time. And it would have been common for people to see probably on a daily basis sheep out in the field, shepherds watching them. And it's not, it's not uh, highly uh, speculative to think that at the time Jesus giving, is giving this, he could have pointed over to a field where there were sheep and a shepherd. So it was a very simple illustration that would be 
an opportunity for those men the next day when they saw a, a flock and a shepherd, they would replay the parable and they could replay it again the next day and the next day. And every time they saw sheep, they could replay this parable. The idea is shepherds know their sheep. And they did at that time. They knew their sheep individually. The shepherd, the sheep knew their shepherd's voice. Shepherds paid attention to their flock. They were responsible if something was missing. And they cared for them. They often had names for all of their sheep. And since they're sheep, they're probably cute names like Fluffy, Snowball, Bruce. Shepherd's overlooking his field. He notices one of the sheep is missing. Who's missing? Oh, that's cumulonimbus that's missing. And he doesn't say, you know, well, well, I still have 99 sheep. It's good. I'm good. No, he leaves the 99 and he goes and searches for the one that is lost. Why does he do that? Well, because he loves his sheep. And his lamb is important to him. And he wants to find him. So he searches. He looks in the nearby canyons, calling out for his sheep. Calls him Nimbus for short. He looks up in a cave to see if he's in there. He's checking under bushes. And he searches all along until he finds him. In verse 5. And when he has found him, he lays him on his shoulder rejoicing. Hey, he's so happy. He found his sheep. He's so happy, he picks him up, puts him on his shoulder and walks. He doesn't say, all right, come with me, Nimbus. Picks him up. He wants to make sure he gets back home safely because he cares about his sheep. And it's not, he, he's not happy because one more sheep and a flock of a hundred adds a tremendous value to his bottom line. He's happy because he cares about the sheep and he loves the sheep no matter how many he has. So much so that he, he searches until he finds it. it. It didn't matter if it took an hour or if it took 21 hours. He's still looking until he finds the sheep. After finding it, he picks it up, carries it back, and rejoices all the way back. In verse 6, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have lost my, or for I have found my sheep which was lost. It's a great day. Maybe you've had a pet. Wandered off, dog or a cat that wandered off, and you wrote up a flyer and you put a picture of it and you you stapled it to trees and taped it to light standards and mailboxes, asking the neighbors to be on the lookout for for your pet. And maybe you got a phone call a couple of days later saying, "Hey, I think we found your pet," and how excited you were, how happy you were when you got that phone call. All of us can relate on some level or another. We've all lost something that we love and we understand the loss and then the search and then the reunion and the elation and the celebration that comes with that. I'm constantly doing that to this day. I'm going, where are my glasses? I have no idea. Where are my glasses? Have you seen my glasses? I don't know where they are. Here, maybe if I put these on, I can find them. This man looks until he finds a sheep and he's so excited. The good shepherd searches for his lost sheep and he finds them, he carries them home because he loves them. Listen to David's prophetic cry in Psalm 28, verse 9. 
Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forevermore. This prophetic cry is this messianic shepherding that you're going to come and carry your people. Listen to the promise to the remnant of Israel. In Isaiah 46, verse 4, God says to Israel, Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. I will carry you. I will bear you. I will deliver you. God is saying to His people, I am going to pick you up. I'm going to carry you. I'm going to make sure you get to the place that I want you to be. After telling the story, Jesus gets to his point in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The Pharisees, the scribes who listened to the story, would have related to the fact that the man goes and searches for the lost sheep. When he finds it, he's happy. They would have related with that. They would have understood. Yes, that's a regular occurrence. We see that kind of thing happening all the time. And then he hits them with the point. There's rejoicing in heaven. In fact, there's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now to be clear, Jesus is not inferring here in any situ- in any way that the Pharisees and the scribes that are listening to him are the 99 righteous. In fact, the parable is intended to not only answer the question, why does Jesus eat with sinners, but to bring about conviction to the Pharisees who thought it was beneath them to eat with sinners. To show them that they don't understand the heart of God at all. They were self-righteous and judgmental and refused to give assent to the fact that God would love sinners enough to fellowship with them, to seek them out. God does not merely accept repentant sinners. God seeks repentant sinners. He looks for us. And if He did not seek us, If you're saved and He did not seek you, if He did not seek me, we would remain lost forever. The reason? Because we would never seek Him on our own. I know some of you think, well, I came to salvation after seeking God. I was looking for answers and I was reading books and I was reading the Bible and I was asking questions and God, I I was looking for the answers and and I finally found the answers in Christ. And, And I would submit to you that God could easily say to you, You would not be searching for me if I hadn't already found you. You would never look for me on your own. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Speaking of Christ, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. That's all of us. Before Christ, we were just wandering away further and further and further. Christ came and picked us up and brought us back to the fold. That's the parable of the lost sheep. The second is the parable of the lost coin, and it's very similar. Verse 8 through 10. 
Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The parable is very similar. Something lost is found, but Jesus ratchets up the value here. One out of ten silver coins, when that's all you have, is more valuable than one out of a hundred sheep. And the third parable will ratchet up even more. It's one out of two sons. But here it's this woman, and the assumption is this is a widow, and this is all she has because she doesn't have family that's helping her look for it. She no mention of a husband here calling friends and neighbors to rejoice with her. But either way, she loses a coin, one of ten, a tenth of what she owns. She loses. It's very valuable. She needs it. We understand loss. We've all lost something important, misplaced something. Maybe you can't find your credit card one day. You go, "Uh uh-oh, where's my credit card? You're looking everywhere. Where's my credit card? Where Where did I use it last? And you're checking all the pockets of Everything you've worn in the last six months trying to find it. And you finally find it. Woo! Hate to go through that hassle of having to cancel this credit card. or what, what, you know, Who's going to buy what? So she begins to look for this coin. She's desperate for it. She's looking everywhere. She starts with a couch. She, she pulls the cushions off to see if it's falling in there. And she doesn't see it, so maybe it fell down the cracks. And she reaches down the cracks where all the crumbs go. And she can't find it there. She can find the sock she was missing for two weeks, but she can't find the coin. So she lights a lamp and she starts in one corner of the house and she moves all the furniture and she starts sweeping the floor. And she continues her way through the house until finally she finds the coin. And she's so relieved. In verse 9, when she found it, very similar to the lost sheep, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I lost. And they rejoice with her. That's great news. We're so excited for you. So happy for you. And then the point of the parable in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I want to make sure you see this in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy... In the presence of the angels of God. Your version may say before the angels of God. Whereas in the lost sheep, it's heaven is rejoicing, and we assume the angels there. Here, Jesus seems to be making a distinction between the angels. Not that they weren't rejoicing, but there was rejoicing in their presence. In other words, it's not the angels that are seen here rejoicing. It's someone in their presence, and that someone is God. Have you ever thought about that? At the moment you got saved, God rejoiced. It's not because he wasn't sure you were going to do it, and you did it, and you went, Woo! Yeah, okay. Thought thought I was going to lose that one. That's not it. But God is so happy that at that moment you became one of his children. That God himself rejoices. Heaven erupts. In a celebration led by God every time a sinner comes to repentance. That's kind of amazing if you think about it. 
I think heaven's got to be a pretty wonderful place because it's got to be celebrating because I think somewhere in the world at all times somebody's getting saved. And heaven's just going from one party to another. Just banner after banner is changing. Congratulations! It's got to be exciting. God rejoices. That that kind of baffles me when I think about it to a certain extent. God, God got excited when I got saved. I know I was excited. He was excited too. And that answers the question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because when they come to repentance, it makes his father happy. It pleases his father. To be aligned with the heart of God is to understand how much he loves the salvation of the lost. Jesus seeks sinners because heaven rejoices when they repent. Jesus befriends sinners because when they repent, it pleases his Father. The Pharisees were out of touch with what thrilled the heart of God. What they were doing actually grieved the heart of God. Because not only were they sinners themselves, but they despised the sinners whom God loves. They despised them so much that they would never give them any gospel truth and thus try to keep them a child of hell. Much like Jonah would not go, did not want to go to Nineveh because he did not want to give them the opportunity to repent. Jonah didn't know the heart of God at that point. He didn't understand it. Or he didn't care. You want to please the heart of your Heavenly Father? You give the Gospel to a lost and dying world. Because when somebody comes to saving faith, God rejoices. It's exciting to Him. The Pharisees stopped caring about what God thought. They only cared about what they thought about God. They didn't care what God thought about them. I agree. It is an awe moment. Do you think about what God cares about? Does that determine how you live your life? What does God think of my life? What pleases the heart of God? We get, it's so easy for Christians to get so wrapped up in their life of going, of telling God what they want in order to be pleased. And so little time saying, God, what can I do to please you? What will make you happy? Why did Jesus associate with tax collectors and sinners? Because it makes God happy when sinners come to repentance. Listen, folks, we live in a world full of sinful people. And God doesn't expect us as Christians to go live in a compound away from sinners. He sends us to them because they desperately need us. 
And I understand the desire to say, I want to protect my family and I want to move my family away from sinful people so they're not infected by the sin. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Do you understand that? The Pharisees were saying, I don't want to be infected by sinful people, so I'm going to get as far away from sinful people as I can. Jesus said, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. I'm sending you in there because those are the people who need the gospel. Because God in His grace is able to transform a wolf into a sheep. And He uses other sheep to do it. Let's not forget why we're here. Let's not forget why God kept us on this earth after He saved us and didn't just transform us, transport us to heaven immediately. He left us here to be light and salt and testimonies of who God is and what He's done. And God rejoices when a sinner comes to repentance. Let's be Christians who are intent on making God happy. Doing things that please Him. Doing things that excite God. By making sure we're giving the gospel to a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You that You brought the gospel to us. Father, You didn't do it because we were worthy. You didn't do it because we were spiritual. You didn't do it because we were smart. Father, You did it because You loved us. You sent somebody to bring the gospel to us. A parent, a family member, Sunday school teacher, a stranger, a missionary. Lord, You sent the gospel to us. And You graciously opened up our eyes and unstopped our ears and removed the heart of stone from our chest and gave us a heart of flesh. Gave us the faith to believe so that we could be saved. And Father, You didn't save us to isolate ourselves. You didn't save us so we could sit around and polish our armor. You saved us because You loved us. And You gave us the task of giving the Gospel to the rest of the world. Father, let us live with that in mind. Let us live with the, with the understanding of what makes You happy. While obedience to Your Word pleases You, Father, we're never told that there's a celebration in heaven when we obey a commandment. But there is a celebration in heaven when a sinner comes to repentance. Father, use us. Use us to bring others to repentance. Use us to give the life-changing gospel message to a lost and dying world. Let us take our role seriously, knowing that You're with us. You will never leave us or forsake us. That Your Holy Spirit empowers us. And You use people like us. Father, we thank You for your goodness to us. Thank you that you're the good shepherd. Thank you that you sought us when we were lost. 
And you brought us to the Father. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. We pray that we would love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.